So I want to do a little more teaching this morning about Christian baptism. We have the baptistry tonight. We have an incredible event. It's the highlight of the year. We do four of these. But I want us to talk about this because I think there's a lot of confusion. And whether you're a Catholic or a charismatic, they don't all do it the same way, right? There's a lot of confusion when it comes to Christian baptism. Why do some groups sprinkle? Why do some groups immerse? Why some children? Why some adults? Why do some groups talk about you get baptized in order to be saved, and others say you, you're already saved, and now you go get baptized? Why do some talk about the traditions of the church, and others say, forget the tradition of the church, let's just open up the Bible and see what the Bible has to say? There's a lot of confusion when it comes to Christian baptism. Not every group, in fact, groups are not the same. Methodist, Episcopalian, Jewish, Catholic, Baptist, Church of Christ, everybody kind of does this a little bit differently. And what are the objections that seem to flow out of this? I've heard several over the years. One of them would be, doesn't it say somewhere in the Bible that you're only supposed to get baptized once? And another objection would be, well, it's not my family background. The way that you do this is, is just not my family background. Will I be dishonoring my parents or my grandparents if I, if I do it this way? And some of you will say, where's like that, the, the honor? I mean, we're, we're at the beach. Where's like the professionalism? I mean, where's the robes? And, and for crying out loud, you pastors are in board shorts. I mean, and, and, and that's a good question. And, and another objection that, that comes at us is kind of like, well, I don't feel worthy. I just don't feel worthy to get baptized. Well, that's good because none of us are. And, and what if I can't keep my commitment? That's a, that's a valid question. And people will say, well, what will people think of me if I go get baptized? Will they think that I have a lot of sin? Yes, we will. <laughs> because you do. Isn't that the whole point of getting baptized? We all have lots of sin. So I, I want to talk about this today. We've not talked about this for probably two years. Something that we do all the time. And I want to see if I can kind of clear of some of this up. But at the end of the message, there's a pitch. There is a pitch coming. At the end of the message, if you've never been baptized as, a, as an adult, as a person that's able to think through all this, I'm going to encourage you to sign up. I'm going to encourage you to sign up at guest services. So I just want you to know there's a pitch that's what? It's coming, all right? There's a pitch coming at the end of the message. So I'm, I'm about 20, 21 years old, and I'm sitting in class studying to be a minister, and everybody's talking about baptism. And I raised my hand and I said, where did this come from? Because we don't see this in the Old Testament. And all of a sudden we come to the New Testament. Here's John the Baptist walking along the shoreline, you know, the banks of the Jordan River. And he says, repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins. And everybody seems to know what he's talking about. Everybody does it. They just start flocking into the Jordan River and are baptized. And I asked the question, I said, how do they all know what's going on? How do they just know that that's what they were supposed to do? And the answer was, 
They started baptisms a lot in the intertestamental period, that 400 years of silence. They began doing baptisms on a regular basis. If you would go up and down the Mediterranean and study some of those towns, archaeologists have unearthed, have discovered hundreds of these baptismal pools, hundreds. They're the size of a small swimming pool. They're the size of maybe a large bath. It's the size of a large, of a, of a jacuzzi, a hot tub. And up and down the, the Mediterranean and up and down all those coastals, there, there's just, there's hundreds of these. That's a baptismal pool. It actually kind of got started in the book of Leviticus when water got connected with cleansing. They didn't understand germs. They didn't have a concept of all that. But water became a symbol. Of course, God knew about it. In the book of Leviticus, they start having water rites, R-I-T-E-S, for some different cleansings. And then it got blown up into kind of a full-blown development where they started taking a bath almost every day. I mean, every day they would go into a baptismal pool like that and just have baths. And so when John the Baptist comes on the scene... And John says, repent for the remission of your sins. John's baptism is very different than Jesus' baptism. John's baptism is a baptism of remission for sins. Jesus is going to be a little bit greater, well, not a little bit, a whole lot greater and a lot more prophetic, and we'll get to that in just a minute. But here's the difference. If you're wondering, why did my Methodist church do it this way, and why did the Church of Christ do it this way? Why did the Lutheran church do it this way? And why did the, and, and what's the difference? Well, I'm going to explain to you two different theologians. And here was the watershed issue. And these two theologians literally have two completely different camps. And we're going to let God figure all that out. But I, I do want you to know about the camps. And so the first one was a fifth century. Uh, historian, theologian by the name of Augustine or Augustine in the year 400 AD. And Augustine taught something and a whole lot of groups went one way. It's kind of like splitting this room right now. All of you follow Augustine or Augustine, you're going to do it a certain way. The other guy, about 15 years later, it's Pelagius. And Pelagius taught something completely different. Now, when I explain what these two guys taught, it's going to make a lot of sense. The light bulbs will come on. So first one is Augustine. Augustine says that infants inherit the sin of Adam and Eve, which means they are born sinners. And so Augustine, or Augustine taught, that at the moment of conception, sin entered the child. Now think about this. You're a woman, you're pregnant, and you give birth, and you've been in labor for 25, 30 hours, and you give birth to a high mortality rate to a stillborn child. And the midwives then are going, oh, my gosh, that child was born in sin. Oh, my goodness, we got a problem here. And they immediately then began sprinkling those children when they came out. Now, Pelagius taught something completely different. Here's what Pelagius taught. Pelagius taught that infants are born without sin and become sinners when they are able to understand right versus wrong. How many of us understand that at some point our kids become sinners? <laughs> right? Anybody disagree with that? They become big time, capital S, capital I, capital N. I'll never forget, Erica was just four, Ethan was not quite three, 
Danita's gone somewhere shopping, and it's a Saturday morning. I'm reading the newspaper. I got this. I got this, honey, go. You know, I'm dad, super dad. I got this. And they're, they're playing in Erica's room. And um, I'm reading the newspaper in my little lazy boy chair, and I'm going, man, we got this parenting down. We are good at this. This is, you know, this is, we should have about 100 kids. We're good at this. And all of a sudden, Erica starts singing, you know, I've got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. Where? Down in my heart. And she stops in mid-sentence. Ethan, if you touch my doll one more time, I'm going to hurt you. (laughs) She starts singing, I've got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. There's a sin nature with kids, isn't there? You bet there is. So there's this struggle. Which theologian do we follow? Do, do we get our kids sprinkled at infancy? Or do we wait until they're old enough to make it up to their own mind and their relationship with Christ? Now, here's a cardinal. Cardinal Newman even said this. He said, It is but fair and right to acknowledge that Scripture does not bid us to baptize children. So even the Roman Catholic cardinal is struggling with this. And the Roman Catholic Church today has both sprinkling and baptismal pools in a lot of their churches. And so the question is, like, do we get dunked? Do we get dipped? Or do we get dry cleaned? I mean, what do we do? We're not exactly sure what we're supposed to do with this topic. So I want to show you now four different groups of people who were baptized in the Scriptures. One was large groups, one was small groups, one were uh, households, and one were individuals. So large groups, small groups, households, and individuals. First of all, we'll do the large group. All right? You still with me? Yes. All right, here we go. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. So here's the apostle Paul, Peter, proclaiming really the first gospel message. And his audience are all the people who crucified Jesus. How would you like to have a hostile audience like that if you're a preacher boy and that's your first experience? That's what he's doing. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, you put him to death. You nailed him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried. So now he goes into David, because all these Jewish people knew they're going to become Messianic Jews. They all knew that there would be a Messiah in the line of David. Someone would follow David. And he's going right along with that line of thinking, because Jesus is of that lineage died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day, but was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on the throne. David's dead. Here's his tomb, but there'll be someone on his throne. It's going to be Jesus. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God raised this Jesus to life. Now, this is from a man who ran. This is from a man who hid. This is from a man who had a little middle school girl and he's cussing at her because he's denying he even knows Jesus three times. But now he's got the power of God. He has seen the resurrected Christ. He will never be the same. I'm a witness of this. In fact, we're all witnesses of this. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and what you now hear. Here's the pitch. 
Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this, God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. That's called conviction. When you sin and your heart hurts, that's called conviction. People heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, how can we make this right? That's what he means. Brothers, what should we do? How do we go forward with this? We've messed up royally. Peter replied, repent, which means change your mind, change your behavior, change your thinking. Repentance is a 180. Change your mind, change your thinking. Change your mind, change your behavior. Repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you, your children, for all who are far off. In other words, the promise was for them, the promise was for their kids, the promise is for all of us in this room, and the promise is for all the generations who are going ahead of us. With many other words, he warned them, he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. 3,000 people gave their lives to Christ and were baptized that day. That's the large group. Say large group. That's the large group. What's coming next? You're so smart. Here we go. Here's the small group, all right? Small group. When Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, the brothers and sisters encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. When he arrived, he, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed. For he vigorously refuted the Jewish opponents in public debates, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. And there he found some disciples and he asked them, okay, here we're coming. Here's coming to the small group now. He finds a small group, about 12 people in all, and he asks this question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believe? And they said, well, we haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. They'd only heard about John the Baptist. They were only dialed in so far to part of the gospel. They didn't have the full gospel yet. So Paul asked them, then, what baptism did you receive? And remember what John did along the shoreline, the banks of the Jordan River? Repent for the remission of your sins. This is what the baptism, John baptism replied. John said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And there were about 12 men in all. I'm just showing you some examples. Multiple examples in the Bible of large groups, multiple examples in the scriptures of small groups. Now, let's look at a household. This was Cornelius, and he's not a Jewish believer. He is a Roman soldier. He is what they would call a pagan, a heathen, but he was devout. So here's a household, Cornelius's household. Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need, and he prayed to God regularly. Surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. Now, this is Peter. And so about 40-some verses just went by, and an angel of God goes and gets Peter. And Peter has to go to these people because Peter thinks they're unclean, and God has to tell Peter, what I've called clean, do not call unclean. And all these Gentiles now can receive Christ, and all these Gentiles now can receive the Holy Spirit. Aren't you glad that was good? Because that's us. Most of us in this room are Gentiles. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So in order that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days 
And there was about 12, uh, there's just about, you know, probably a whole household. Now, here's an individual. This guy is now known as the Ethiopian eunuch. I'm just giving you an example. There's plenty of examples, a plethora of examples of these individuals. Now, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in the charge of all the treasury of Candace. In other words, the guy is a CPA. The guy's an accountant taking care of her bills, receivable, and all that kind of payroll, which means queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way, he was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Philip then ran up, Philip's an evangelist, ran up to the chariot, heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet, and he asked him this question, do you understand Ethiopian eunuch, what you are reading? How can I? I'm reading Isaiah 53. I don't have a clue what Isaiah 53 is all about. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up into the chariot and sit with him. And this is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb before it shears, it's silent. So he did not open his mouth. This is Christ on the cross. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. And the eunuch asked Philip, Tell me, please, who's the prophet talking about? Himself or someone else? And then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here's water. What can stand in the way of me being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and Philip baptized him. I'm just giving you some examples. I'm trying to help us make some sense out of this very challenging dialogue. You were raised in a family. You were raised in a background. Maybe some of you have no background with this. Maybe some of you are very confused about this background, and it's a challenge for you. Let me see if I can kind of assimilate this in four or five points. Here's number one. If you've got your app on your phone, and you want to fill these in on your app, that would just be great. We land with Pelagius. Um, my family tradition was more Augustine. I was sprinkled in the Methodist church at, at six weeks old, and that kind of came from that tradition. As I got a little bit older, um, I began to read and realize that everybody in the Bible that got baptized were people who made a conscious decision. Now, I don't think there's anything wrong with what happened. I don't think there's anything wrong with your family background. I don't think there's anything wrong with, with that. But I don't remember it. I, uh, I don't remember at six weeks of age. So my parents did it for all the right reasons, didn't they? I don't see anything wrong with that. But let me tell you what I do remember. I do remember the preacher sitting in our living room. I do remember when Dad was 40. I do remember when I was 14. I do remember when the preacher is laying out the gospel message in our living room. And I am shocked. There had never been a preacher in our living room in our entire life. And I saw my dad get real humble. And I remember that Sunday when my dad and I were baptized together. I'll never forget it. I'll never forget that moment. So... We don't, on Parent Dedication Sunday, 
baptize your babies. We don't believe that they were conceived in sin. We believe that eventually they all have a very sinful nature. But that comes later, that they have to discern between right and wrong, and they have to make a decision at some point in their lives. So we tend to land more with Pelagius. Um, We think baptism is an invitation to identify with the greatest event in all of history. That which is the greatest event was the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's no event in history greater than that. Jesus' death, Jesus' burial, Jesus' resurrection, greatest event in all of history. And so what you do in Christian baptism is, is you go into the Gulf of Mexico, or you go into our baptistry over here, or you go into your swimming pool, and symbolically, you go through that death, burial, and resurrection. It's a symbol. You die to yourself, we bury your past, and you raise to walk to a new life. Now, it, it's not, it's a symbol, and, and there's nothing magical about the waters. The waters aren't necessarily purified, and they're going to be salt water this afternoon. But it's a symbol of the greatest event that ever took place in all of history. Number three, baptism, there has to be a, a conviction. There has to be a change, a repentance. There has to be a confession of Christ as Lord. And so, so baptism comes when a person understands, I'm a sinner. I need a Savior for crying out loud. I can't save myself. The gap between me and God is too great. The chasm is too large. I need a Savior who's my bridge, who's my high priest. And so baptism is when you really kind of like, wow, you get it. This is a gift. I don't know about those of you in the room that have been Christians for a while, but I'm still in awe of God's amazing grace. It's not ordinary grace. It's amazing grace that Jesus died for me and Jesus died for you. That's astounding. Just absolutely astounding. And baptism then symbolizes our entrance into a community of believers. It's what we all have in common. It's that flag in the ground. It's that external mark. It's that what we all share together. And so baptism really unites us. And unfortunately, it's divided. So many churches and so many backgrounds and so many organizations. May that death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus May it pull us together. Just pull us together. So I'm asked great questions, and our whole pastoral staff, our team, are asked great questions. And one of those is, is when, when should my child get baptized? Great question. My child's three or four. Are they ready? No, probably not. Seven or eight? Maybe. My answer is, I think they need to understand that there's a Savior and that Jesus is the hero. I think they need to understand a little bit between right and wrong. And I've, I've, told, some, I've told some lies or I stole my brother's candy bar or whatever, you know. I, I think they need to understand right from wrong at some point in their lives. I don't think there's a magical age. But I do think there needs to be a magical Savior 
that is in front of them. On the day of Pentecost, 3,000 people got baptized. They heard one sermon. How much did they know? What they knew was they had crucified God's son. They had royally messed up. That's what they knew. And they knew that he was the only ticket to heaven and for forgiveness and guilt and shame. We're asked some really good questions. We're said, you know, my parents, you know, did this for me. And I went to the Episcopal Church. I was sprinkled, you know, at six weeks. And, and, and what should I do now? Well, I think that's great. Your parents did that for them. But you need to do this for you. This baptism is about you. It's about you identifying with the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I think it's great what your parents did. But I know what I did at 14. That stuck. People ask this third question, which is another really good question. And they'll say, well, I, I did it for all the right reasons. I gave my life to Christ at 16 or 17 years old. And I was baptized by immersion. I, I, I was fully in. I knew exactly what I was doing. And, and then maybe it would be a female that would say this. And I said, but then I, I became a young adult. And I discovered the world. And I discovered beer. <laughs> and, and preacher, I, I discovered a lot of beer. And then they, they act like I don't know what they're talking about. And I was like, I, I got it. I, I can play the movie forward. Or it'll be a guy, he'll be, you know, he'll be now in his 40s, and he'll go back and say, you know, when I was 18 years old, I did it for all the right reasons. I did it for all the right reasons, but I went to college preacher, and I discovered women. And I don't think he meant that there was a gender difference. And I go, I, I, we don't have to go R-rated on this story. I got it, I got it, I got it. Just, just, I got it. And they're asking the question, did it take? Did my, I'm 40 years old, but at 18 or at 17, did my baptism take? And my answer to that is, I think it did. I think it did take. Because you see, your salvation is not based on what you did or what you can do. It's not based on your works. Your salvation is based on the death, the burial, the resurrection, and the ascension of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Your salvation is not on what you did because you couldn't do much except say, I accept Jesus. That's all you could really do. He did 99% of the work. You did one. You made one good decision. He did all the rest. But you're asking, should I get rebaptized even if it took? And I say to the person, I think you want permission. I think you're asking me for permission because you would like to be rebaptized as a, a reboot, as a restart. And I said, I think that's wonderful. I think that's a really great idea. And so we have rebaptized a whole lot of people who felt like they needed a, a fresh start to, to begin all over again. But your baptism is this last one, which is the most important one, the most potent one. Your baptism is prophetic. I want you to get this. I want you to really understand this. John's baptism 
was a baptism for repentance. But even John said, I'm not worthy to even tie the sandals of my cousin who's coming. Because my cousin, he's going to baptize you in the power of the Holy Spirit. And, and, and this is good, and we still got to be baptized, and, and we still need repentance and remission of sins, but now it's prophetic. And, and your baptism is prophetic means this is my desire. This has been my dream. My dream has been before the foundation of the world was ever created. My dream was is that my spirit would now live and dwell inside of you. And so there's even a difference with the Spirit now that needs to be carefully understood. The Holy Spirit, when you you become a Christian and you're baptized and you're all in, the Holy Spirit comes inside of you. That's for you. And that's great. That's for your conviction. That's for your comfort. That's for your guidance. That's for your wisdom. That's for you to make really good decisions. That's fantastic. But your baptism is bigger than you. It is prophetic. The Holy Spirit comes to live in you. That's for you, and that's wonderful. But now the Holy Spirit wants to flow through you. I want to live in you. It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. I put my spirit, I put my nature in you so that you will go into culture, you will go into environments, you will go into families, you will go into stores, you will go into businesses, and you will change the environment. Because it's not just about you. It's not a lake. It's a raging river. And the river of the Spirit of God is to flow in you, but it's to flow through you. It's wonderful that it's in me. But it's bigger than that. It's for you to pray things down. It's for you to charge hell with a water pistol. It's for you to listen and be and do and create and formulate things that you could never do in the flesh. John's baptism, cool. Cool, cool, cool. Jesus' baptism? Your baptism into Jesus? It is prophetic. And it will change you. It will change your spouse. It will change your cousin. It will change your culture. It will change your workforce. It is to change. So the Spirit of God tomorrow morning, if it's just in you, okay, cool. But you're being a little selfish. Because it's never been about you. Your baptism is prophetic. It is to flow through you. And when the presence of God comes on you, he will then flow through you. And things that you could never explain begin to happen. And that's God's dream for you. And that's our challenge. And so here's the pitch. Get baptized. Get baptized tonight. Go sign up at the guest service desk, the desk right out here. Sign up. Get there at 5.30 tonight. Let the Spirit of God come inside of you, cleanse you, change you, transform you, give you guidance for business, give you guidance for family, give you direction. That's great. But it is so much bigger than just you. It's prophetic. It's prophetic. It's prophetic. So let's stand. I'm going to ask the prayer partners to come down front. And I'm going to ask you to make the most important decision that was the heartbeat of the Father before the foundation of the world. 
We worship you, O King of kings and Lord of lords. And we come into your presence. And we're overwhelmed with your goodness and your mercy. Now I pray for my friends in this room that have never been baptized. I pray they go sign up right now. I pray for my friends in this room that feel like they need a do-over, a reboot. I pray that you will help us as a church to navigate through these waters and to be the, the church that you've called us to be. Oh God, greater are you that is in us than he that is in the world. May we charge hell with a water pistol today and tomorrow and every day. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. God bless you. God bless you.